Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new uh, episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series that tries to bring European history, culture, and civilization to bear on problems of contemporary EU politics and policy. Well, I am honored today to be joined on the platform by one of the greatest uh, and most renowned global historians, uh, Neil Ferguson. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much, uh, Federica, for those kind words. Yes, well, I think they're they are just fair. And I should also say that you are one of the historians that have fought the most to make the discipline relevant for politics and policy making. So I think you're you're a particularly good fit uh, for the idea of the of the podcast series. Just briefly to introduce you, you don't really need much of a presentation because I think most of our listeners will know you very well, but you are a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University, and you still maintain a senior faculty role at the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs, so at Harvard's Kennedy School. You have authored, I believe, uh, this is the one we are going to discuss, is your 17th book? I think that's right. I've slightly lost count. Yes. Um, And well, uh, the book that we are here to discuss is uh, your latest, published in May 2021, called Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. And the occasion for the book, of course, everyone can see was the pandemic. But what what you're really offering us in that book is a general history of catastrophe. So you don't just speak about pandemics, although pandemics do feature in the book, but you try to reflect on the historic lessons um, of all kinds of disaster. So maybe I'll I'll start with a general question and, um, and, and say that my impression reading the book was that you have two methodological building blocks. And one of them is applied history, and the other one is network science. These are the two disciplines that somehow offer the the, 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 the intellectual skeleton of the book. So my first question will be, why, why do you think these two disciplines are important or should be important for European policymakers? And uh, also, how can they help us cope with pandemics like COVID-19 and other types of catastrophe better than we have perhaps done over the last years? Well, let me take applied history first. It's a relatively novel concept. The idea uh, is that one should use history at least part of the time to inform contemporary policy discussions, and we don't do that nearly enough. Part of the problem is that policymakers aren't very historically well-educated. Part of the problem is that academic historians, by and large, have very little interest in addressing a policy audience. And and so we have a kind of divergence between the two communities. My view is that we don't have much more to go on really than history, given the the lack of uh, precision of formal economic or uh, political science based, or for that matter, epidemiological models. I mean, you can pin your faith on models if you like, but good luck out there. Actually, history is a more reliable source of insight Uh, requiring a different set of of intellectual disciplines. So I've been arguing uh, for some time, uh, along with historians and political scientists, I think of Graham Allison here, that 
we really need to be more systematic in the way that we apply history and that this is something that requires more discipline and, and organization than the kind of casual analogies that get tossed around uh, by politicians in, in, and indeed by journalists in which uh, it's somehow always the 1930s in some respect or another. Part of the point of the book Doom is to suggest that his, history is in many ways one damn disaster after another and you have to understand the ways that disaster strikes to have any hope of navigating uh, history, whether you're a leader or for that matter a voter. Network science is a whole different ballgame. It's a very interdisciplinary field. Uh, it had its origins in mathematics, but you'll just as likely encounter uh, network science amongst uh, sociologists, uh, medical scientists, economists. If I look around the Stanford campus, there's network science being done in, oh, at least a dozen different departments, including, of course, computer science. In my last book, The Square and the Tower, I argued that you can't really understand uh, the world if you have a hazy grasp of networks, because uh, we are all organized uh, into social networks, and we also think with the help of neural networks. And if you don't understand how networks function, you're not going to have a good handle on, let me give you two examples. Number one, a pandemic, uh, which is as contagious as A, the pathogen, and B, the social network it attacks. And you're also not going to understand the phenomenon of, of fake news and extreme views on the internet, because that's very much driven by the structure of, of uh, online networks. My impression is that most European politicians, regardless of national origin, are quite bad at both applied history and network science. And that often leads them to make uh, poor decisions. And uh, I think we've had plenty of examples of that over the last couple of decades. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Neil. Uh, maybe you talked about the last couple of decades. Maybe let's zoom in immediately uh, uh, on the last couple of years, on the last two years more precisely, which have confronted us, of course, with a major catastrophe in a way, maybe not major from the point of view of the, of the excess mortality, but in other regards, certainly a very disruptive experience that will, will mark, I think, an entire generation. Um, so I, I'll try out of the book some of the, some of the lessons that I see as potentially interesting for the European Union. And maybe, maybe the first thing that I, that I found striking and that relates um, uh, really with both applied history and network science is your rather damning um, judgment of the failure of the public health bureaucracy in, in each major global pandemic. You speak about SARS, MERS, now uh, COVID. Um, and, and so I was wondering whether uh, you would extend that criticism of uh, the public bureaucracy also to the handling of the, of the pandemic in the EU and by the EU to the extent that the EU uh, was involved. The interesting thing about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that, that causes COVID-19, is that it has a relatively low dispersion factor uh, compared with some other infectious, infectious diseases, which means that a relatively small number of, of infected people do a lot of the spreading. It's roughly 20% of infected people who do 80% of the spreading. And uh, these super spreaders uh, are really the key to understanding what happened in 2020. In China, 
the authorities at both the local provincial level and at the national level failed disastrously to be honest about what was going uh, wrong in Wuhan. And as a consequence, infected people traveled uh, all over the world. There were di direct flights uh, from Wuhan to uh, Paris, uh, to London, and if memory serves, to Rome, uh, as well as uh, to Moscow, to San Francisco, to New York. And these flights continued right up until the last uh, days of, of January. Uh, in addition, people could fly indirectly, and who knows how many uh, did that. It was the time of the Chinese Lunar New Year, so enormous numbers of people were, were traveling. The entire world was exposed as a result because never have uh, we as human beings been so interconnected by uh, systems of transport as we were at the end of 2019. The European Union was not in an especially a bad position, it was just in the same position as uh, everybody else, including uh, the United States. The most important feature of the European uh, Union's handling of the crisis actually lies in the fiscal domain. Prior to the 2020 pandemic, Europe had hit a kind of roadblock on the path to further fiscal integration. And this had been most obvious during the financial crisis when ultimately the Southern European, European Union members got bailed out, but only at the last possible minute and the, in the most destabilizing way. This time around, uh, I think in some measure due to President Emmanuel Macron's pressure, uh, but also the readiness of other European leaders to agree with him, there was a fiscal response. The lockdowns caused economic activity to crater everywhere, uh, including in Europe, and there had to be offsetting measures uh, to cope with that, or there would have been a downward spiral in economic activity. The European Union's next generation EU uh, programme, although it's not a permanent uh, feature, it's a temporary expedient, was a much better solution to the problem than anything that had been seen during the financial crisis. So there I think we need to recognise success uh, where we see it. Uh, but if you ask a slightly different question, and that is, well, how did the EU do in preventing the spread of the virus and preventing excess mortality? Uh, the people who thought in uh, the middle of 2020 that it was going to do way, way better than the United States were completely wrong. In the end, the outcome has not been that much better if you look at the EU as a whole, because some member states have had a really disastrous experience. Uh, others have done relatively better, but altogether, all told, it's not really been a story of, of success. But on the fiscal side, the economic shock was, was much better handled than the economic shock of the financial crisis. Yeah, I see what you mean. Would you say, do you think that there is any, any maybe lesson that can be learned about the impact that catastrophes in general and pandemic in particular have on political centralization throughout history? Um, uh, because certainly, I mean, you say it's not, it's not permanent, next generation EU, true. Although many observers believe that one way or another, it will, it will be stabilized. Of course, there are many, many uncertainties about that. But if it is stabilized, it will indeed be a major uh, step in the direction of a more economically and fiscally integrated and therefore, in a way, more centralized, more, more consolidated um, European Union. 
and it, it strikes, uh, I, I'm thinking that you, in the book, you, you identify instances certainly in which pandemics uh, or catastrophes undermined or even destroyed uh, political systems, but also others in which they favor centralization. Um, you mentioned the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 as an example in which uh, the reconstruction was accompanied by a significant degree of centralization of powers in the governments. Is this, uh, is this going to happen in Europe, you think? This is a very difficult question to answer because there are clearly episodes in history in which a major crisis and one that causes high excess mortality necessitated uh, increased centralization. The world wars come to mind here. Now, some of your listeners will go, well, why is he talking about world wars uh, having just been talking about a pandemic? And the answer is that they do belong together. Uh, Amartya Sen, the great Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, Indian economist, an old friend of mine from Harvard days, argued many, many years ago that we shouldn't think of famines as natural disasters. We should think of them as, as ultimately man-made. And I think this applies generally. Maybe the best insight in doom is that this is generally true of disasters, that we, we aren't really making a, a, a meaningful uh, distinction when we call some disasters natural. Was COVID-19 a natural disaster? Not if it turns out that there was a lab leak at the beginning, but even if there wasn't, even if it was a uh, a natural uh, zoonotic uh, evolution uh, of a coronavirus, the fact that the mortality varied so massively from country to country, there was none in Taiwan, there was basically no excess mortality in Norway, uh, and yet there was massive excess mortality in, say, Peru or Ecuador, the fact that there are these enormous variations, despite it's being essentially the same virus, that tells us that there's a fundamentally political character to the outcomes uh, of, uh, of a pandemic. Now, centralization is not in and of itself a good thing. Sometimes it's what you need. It would have been pretty hard to wage World War II uh, without some significant centralization of economic activity. Uh, but it's a mistake to make it a permanent feature because by and large, excessive centralization muffles uh, market and other signals that are in fact very important in producing uh, efficient allocation of resources. This is Hayek's old and important point. Centralization for its own sake is not a good thing. Remember, the, the biggest disasters in the 20th century, apart from the world wars, were inflicted by the most centralized states in history, namely the Soviet Union, the Third Reich, and the People's Republic of China, under uh, uh, the, the tyrants who for a time ruled those states, uh, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao. So we've got to remember that centralization itself can cause disasters. It was precisely the fact that Stalin had all the power in the Soviet Union that led to the disaster of the, the great uh, famine inflicted not only on Ukraine, but other parts of the Soviet Union, as well as the, the terror that, that uh, killed so many people for, for purely political reasons. When we turn to the case of the European Union, it sometimes feels as if the word subsidiarity is a, is a word honored in the breach, that the basic impulse of European political elites is to make ever closer union a reality. I think it was for that reason, ultimately, that the United Kingdom 
uh, opted to leave the EU because there really was no great appetite in the UK for a, for a federal Europe. But I'd say, by, by and large, European leaders find the notion of a federal Europe or at least a more integrated confederal Europe a pretty attractive one. Now, let's just ask how the European institutions performed with respect to the most important thing you do in the face of a pandemic. The most important thing you do is not lockdowns. That's a temporary measure. The most important thing you do is try to find a vaccine, try to find a vaccine that's really good. Yeah, I, I, I must say that I, I concur with the point that you make on centralization. Actually, it's a rather recurrent theme, this issue of subsidiarity um, in, in, in the podcast series and in the work of the, of the Martin Center uh, in general. I think it is true that Eurofiles have a tendency to identify progress in European integration with the EU becoming more and more like a state, including now, for example, in health policy. The, the, the immediate reaction of a lot of commentators was, well, this was a failure of a lack of centralization, so we need to centralize health policy. Um, but as, as you explained very well in the book, there is a trade-off between, um, I think you put it as a trade-off between self-defense and innovation. Uh, hierarchical centralized structures are better at self-defense, but network structure, diffuse structures are better at innovation. And I wonder whether the EU vocation is not to be an open network of competition and innovation, bottom-up competition and innovation, as opposed to a centralized, you know, uh, command uh, structure. So in, in this, I, I don't know whether you want to comment on that. Well, the Square and the Tower made this argument explicitly, arguing essentially that the vision of uh, the European Union as it evolved in the second half of the 20th century was in some ways anachronistic by the end of the 20th century. Uh, technology prior to, let's say, the 1990s had generally favored hierarchical structures of governance. Uh, the, the technologies of the telephone, uh, the telegraph before it, of, of, of railroads, uh, the technologies of the 19th and early 20th century definitely favoured centralised structures. Uh, there were hub and spoke type technologies. The internet changes everything very profoundly, changes the structure of the public sphere, most obviously, but it actually changes the structure of the economy, too, in ways that are still uh, playing out. And I think that one of the mistakes that that was made uh, along the path was to believe that monetary union was a necessary way to shoehorn member states into something more like political union. Jacques Delors had this vision. I think it was already slightly dated at the time that he first uh, suggested it. By the time it was being executed in the 1990s, it seemed pretty obvious to me that you didn't need a monetary union. Moreover, that a monetary union might actually be self-harming because of the, the asymmetry that would emerge between centralized monetary policy and still decentralized fiscal policy. I mean, that was a staringly obvious structural problem. I wrote about it 20 years ago with Larry Kotlikov, and we rightly predicted that at some point the system would come close to blowing up because of that asymmetry. I don't think you needed to do that, actually. Ultimately, the, the world is a networked world as never before. And if you create excessive hierarchical uh, structures, it will choke off innovation. That's also true in, in the world of technology. If Google and Apple have too much power, 
they will in fact suck the oxygen out of innovation by simply acquiring anything that looks like a competitor and suffocating it so that it doesn't pose a threat. The, the new hierarchies of Silicon Valley are just as troubling to me as the old ones. But building a European Union as if it's to be a United States of Europe using essentially 20th century concepts of power, that seems like a completely uh, erroneous strategy, as erroneous as it will turn out Xi Jinping's strategy was of trying to restructure uh, the People's Republic of China along Maoist lines, albeit with a different economic model. Uh, the reassertion of the power of the Chinese Communist Party and the elevation of one leader, complete with personality cult, to a position of total power, so much power that he can dictate how many hours Chinese kids can play uh, computer games. And that's crazy. That makes no sense at all in the 21st century. What we really need to be trying to do is institutionalizing decentralization wherever we possibly can and taking advantage of the, the kind of resilience that comes from a genuinely distributed network. Uh, I, I wish more people in Brussels understood this and, and maybe took more regular trips to Switzerland, which is really an interesting illustration of the opposite and, and, uh, and profoundly important tendency to keep things decentralized. Heaven knows how the Swiss achieved this. Uniquely amongst developed economies, they've retained a highly decentralized political structure. And I recently took a trip from Switzerland to Germany. And I have to say, I felt like I was doing time travel because Switzerland seemed so much more uh, prosperous uh, and advanced compared with, uh, with Germany. This shocked me, I have to say. So I, I think there's a great danger in pinning too much hope on the idea of, of, of centralizing power of ever closer union. I think the whole notion of ever closer union is an anachronism. Yeah, although, I mean, this, this brings us off topic a little bit. I agree with you, but we need to remember that it was originally not meant as a centralistic concept. Ever closer union meant a union that never became final, that never fully consolidated and therefore was ever closer. So in this sense, it recognized that the, 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 the members of this union would retain their, uh, their differences forever, basically. That this union would never be complete. It would never be a state-like structure. But indeed, I, I entirely agree with, your, with your, um, uh, the substance of your point. Um, let me... Now, we, we have talked a little bit about the, the political lessons of the book for the EU's ability to cope with, with um, uh, catastrophe. Uh, now I want to zoom out a little bit and, and, and reflect with you on the impact of the pandemic and, uh, and of the catastrophes we are going through on the international order. This is something that features uh, rather prominently towards the end of the, of the book and also the use, the use position within this international order. And now you mentioned two alternatives, if I, if I have read you correctly. The first is that the EU, you, you believe essentially that we are in Cold War II. This has been an issue yes. that you have been insisting upon a lot over the last couple of years. And that the EU basically uh, might either uh, become part of a revamped Cold War II West hostile to China, and so essentially aligned with, with the United States in the global confrontation with China, but you also see a risk that the EU might slide into uh, something resembling the non-aligned movement of the first, of the first Cold War. Um, of course, the EU was, Europe was not part of the non-aligned movement at the time, but it might in the second uh, um, Cold War that you see. 
first scenario that you don't mention in the book, and I wonder why you don't mention it, because many commentators have insisted on that, is the possibility that this is instead a, a world that is evolving towards um, great power competition and balance of power uh, dynamics uh, that might see the emergence of different imperial zones, and that therefore Europe might be one of these balancing, um, globally balancing different imperial zones. So how, what is the impact of the pandemic on international order? Where are we going? I do think we're in Cold War II. I think we've been in it for longer than most of us know. It became apparent in 2018, almost as an accidental consequence of Donald Trump's trade war, that in fact, the United States and China were at odds in multiple domains, including the, the technological, uh, as well as the classical geopolitical. Uh, there's an arms race going on, but it's not the old arms race of nuclear weapons, or at least that's not the most important part of it. It's an arms race in artificial intelligence and even quantum computing. There's a space race going on, which may turn out to matter a great deal in the event of, uh, of a hot war. And in this dynamic, as in the first Cold War, there are two superpowers and no others. And one should be quite clear that in military terms, uh, as well as in terms of uh, military uh, or military applicable technology, the European Union's nowhere. Uh, and that, that's, that's obvious because the entire uh, security of the principal members of the EU, in particular Germany, is dependent on the United States, something that many Germans are in denial about. But the reason that the German defense budget is a relatively small percentage of GDP below its NATO obligation is that, that essentially Germany is a free rider on uh, US uh, defense spending. If the US withdrew its support uh, for NATO, which is not inconceivable because if Donald Trump's re-elected in 2024, which has to be at least a 30% a probable scenario, I think he'll do that. If that happens, what's, what's exactly Germany's strategy? Uh, it's one thing for uh, French and other leaders to talk about strategic autonomy, but the European Union is a very, very long way from being able to achieve that. And I don't see politically that there is the will to increase defence spending in the way that the, the EU would have to. So the first thing to recognise is that in Cold War II, the European Union cannot be a comparable player. There are two superpowers and everybody else is in a lower tier. So what happens? Does the European Union align itself with the US uh, as in effect its uh, predecessor, the European Economic Community did via its members being roughly congruent with the membership of NATO? That's not so clear for two reasons. Firstly, the EU is a much bigger entity. It has a bunch of members who are strongly attracted by China's economic uh, influence. Think of Italy, for example. Uh, it also has some uh, relatively new members who are very uh, eager to, uh, to take money from Beijing, see Hungary. And so it's a bigger and harder entity to align in a straightforward way. Secondly, the geography is different. The Soviet Union posed a direct, a present threat to all of Western Europe from the late 1940s right the way through really until detente uh, or maybe even until uh, Reagan and Gorbachev began seriously talking about disarming. Now, this is different. China poses a threat to Taiwan, uh, not to Germany. 
Uh, and the whole geographical orientation of Cold War II will be trans-Pacific, not trans-Atlantic. And for that reason, the stakes are much lower for Europe than they were. And there is indeed, I think, a perception in Germany, if you look at some polling that was done, which I cite in the book by the Kerber Foundation, Germans want to be non-aligned. They don't want to have to choose. Uh, if anything, they're slightly more hostile to the United States than to, to China, at least they were when Donald Trump was president. So we're in a very different landscape uh, in Cold War II, even if the structures are broadly comparable, because a US-China Cold War is, is trans-Pacific and Europe does have, have the option to be non-aligned, or at least it thinks it does. I'm not sure that it will be able to be non-aligned because I think we've already seen with the Huawei issue that it's quite hard to uh, say no when the United States is really leaning on you, just as it's hard to say no if the US starts uh, waving the financial sanctions stick. Uh, so my sense is that Europe will, will be non-aligned until the chips are suddenly down. And I just don't know what will happen if there is a crisis over Taiwan in the next few years, which I think there will be. My sense is that NATO will try to be on board with US strategy, but there will be an enormous amount of foot dragging, especially in Berlin and in Brussels. And so I don't think there'll be the West uh, as we knew it in Cold War I, uh, in Cold War II. I, I think the West will, will cease to be a viable concept. And, and that's certainly a view one hears, uh, especially in Germany. It's in, indeed one of, of Angela Merkel's senior advisors recently told Der Spiegel, I don't talk about the West anymore. We've dropped that. Neil, I have one last question talking about catastrophes, because, well, there is one uh, uh, sort of impending or seemingly impending catastrophe that clearly has dominated and still dominates in many ways, despite the pandemic, uh, the minds of Europeans um, uh, more than any other possible catastrophe, and that is climate change. Um, I think out of all continents, Europe is the ones in which this issue is most uh, heartfelt at the popular level, and in which also um, um, policy has been heavily following this feeling and, and uh, embarking on rather ambitious plans of adjustment. Of course, we can mention the European Green Deal and, and, and this very ambitious idea of becoming the first climate neutral continent by, by 2050. And I wonder how, based on the framework of your book and based on your um, understanding of historical catastrophes, how should Europe, what advice can you give the Commission uh, and national European governments? How should we go about tackling climate change? Well, we could do an entire podcast on this subject. I'll keep it brief. Uh, the first thing to recognize is that, that, that climate change is not the only potential disaster that we face. If we talk exclusively about it and ignore the others, we'll be blindsided again as we were last year. I mean, I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January of 2020, and the agenda was entirely dominated by climate change. Greta Thunberg was there and, uh, and demanding an immediate cessation of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions uh, and being applauded. And, and by that time, a pandemic had already begun and one couldn't make people see that we were potentially in fact at a super spreader event. So the first thing to say is let's not be myopic. Compared with some other forms of disaster like a pandemic, climate change is relatively slow moving uh, and, and probably won't actually kill that many people. It's much more likely just to cause them to relocate 
Uh, and so migration rather than excess mortality is what policymakers are probably going to have to uh, worry about most over the next, let's say, 50 years. Uh, the second thing to say is that we are clearly failing to prevent rising temperatures because we are not globally curbing greenhouse gas emissions. And this creates uh, a classic problem of coordination. It won't do any good if uh, the European Union gets to net zero, drastically reduces its uh, CO2 and other emissions if China and India continue to increase theirs. Uh, here's a little fact uh, for your listeners. 93% of the increase in coal consumption in the world since Greta Thunberg was born is accounted for by China and two thirds of the increase in CO2 emissions. Uh, in fact, Asia continues to propel its growth very heavily on the back of burning coal. Uh, Europeans can be very noble uh, in sacrificing, and there is a sacrifice involved, uh, by, by paying more for their energy, uh, by attaching a price uh, to uh, oil and coal and even to natural gas, to, to carbon. But it won't save the planet if it's only Europe that's doing it or only Europe and North America. So that's the, the second important point, that, that Paris had no teeth. The third thing, which is, is really important, is that European leaders have misunderstood what is attainable. It is not possible to transition to a renewables only energy mix in the kind of time frame that they have in mind. The Green Deal is a completely unrealistic strategy and it's unrealistic because it assumes far too much can be done with so-called renewables. If you aim at uh, a, an energy mix that's predominantly uh, solar and wind, uh, then you are going to get into the deepest trouble because they're not only renewable, they're also intermittent. And if you don't have adequate baseload from uh, non-intermittent sources, uh, then you are going to very quickly find yourself in the kind of trouble that Europe currently is in. Uh, and so there's, there's a need to rethink this uh, and to bring natural gas and nuclear back in much more than, than has been the case, that this can't be done on, on renewables only, that we don't have the technology to make that work, we don't have the capacity for storage, we don't have the battery technology, and trying to do it prematurely is going to actually have perverse unintended consequences, and I'll tell you two of them and then I'll shut up. Consequence number one, reliance on Russia. This was something you could see coming a mile off. I can remember worrying about this back in 2007. If you make Russia the principal source of your natural gas, then you are going to end, end up in some measure at the mercy of Vladimir Putin. Unintended consequence number two, the Gilets Jaunes will be back and back in force all over Europe if, if the consequence of green deals looks like being higher prices for uh, running a car and heating a home. It's as simple as that. Uh, voters are in favor of saving the planet until you say, and by the way, you're gonna pay this bill. And notice, the way the European Green Deal is set up, the burdens of adjustment will fall, fall disproportionately on poorer households because it's regressive to crank up the price uh, of fossil fuels. It's, it's very regressive indeed if you suddenly crank up the price of hydrocarbons. Uh, and I, I don't think European leaders have understood this. In fact, I think the Green Deal will turn out to be a perfect illustration of the point we were discussing earlier, that excessive centralization produces plans 
that are shot through with unintended consequence problems and will blow up in the face of, of the of the planner. So, uh, you know, red alert about your Green Deal Europe. This thing is already going very badly wrong. It's not going to save the planet if it's unilateral and it's not even going to be sustainable if it isn't politically, if it's not politically sustainable. Thanks, uh, Neil. And I'm afraid we probably need to bring it to a close on this sobering message that you gave us. Well, I can only say that we have only scratched the very surface of the book. It's very rich in insight. So I really invite all listeners to buy it and to read it because it's a very rewarding uh, read. Uh, I, I thank you very much for accepting the invitation to be with us. And I can only say that we need to hear more uh, historical reasoning in EU policy making too. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Federico. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.